This morning's reading is from Genesis. It's uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to 19, and it's on page 5 of your pew Bibles. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And so he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire for your husband, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife, and ate fruit from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Linda. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that in the written word 
and through the spoken word, we may see the living word, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The creation story in Genesis chapter 1 answers some of the most fundamental questions of life. Who am I? Where am I? Why am I here? It presents a majestic and eternal God who made the heavens and the earth and all living creatures. He declared everything he had made to be good, indeed very good. But that raises a further question. For although creation is awe-inspiring and beautiful, there are many troubling aspects of the world around us. G.K. Chesterton, who wrote the Father Brown detective stories, also published a book entitled What's Wrong with the World? In fact, he gave a shorter comment on the same topic in a letter that he wrote to the Daily News in 1905. He wrote this, The answer to the question, what is wrong, is or should be, I am wrong. He got to the heart of the matter. There's something fundamentally wrong with society because there's something wrong with us. But why is this? if the world was created good? That's the question that chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis address. They offer a complementary perspective on creation. The cosmic scope of the heavens and the earth being called into existence fades from view. In its place, we find an intimate story about a human couple. And God is now called by his personal name, Yahweh in Hebrew. It's written in our Bibles as the Lord in capital letters. We find him lovingly creating a man and a woman and placing them in a beautiful garden in Eden. They were free to enjoy everything except only that they must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The story is all about relationships, above all the relationship between God and this man and woman. But Adam and Eve gave in to temptation. They broke that relationship and they were cast out of the garden. It's a simple story yet also profound. It describes how things should be and then how they went wrong in an event that we call the fall. Thankfully, it also hints at a solution to the problem. But before we explore the diagnosis, we need to consider what type of literature we have here. It's a story about a garden with two special trees. And there's also a strange talking serpent. Now, Satan is described in the book of Revelation as that ancient serpent. So we can recognize symbolic language here. 
And when we read in chapter 2 verse 7 that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, we know that is not meant to be taken literally either, for God doesn't have lungs to breathe with. It's talking about something that marks man out as different from the animals. A God-breathed spiritual aspect to mankind. It points to the relationship that God has enabled us to have with him. So we need to consider what the various elements of the story represent. For example, when chapter 2 speaks of God taking a rib from Adam to make the woman, the focus is not on some marvel of surgery. Rather, as Matthew Henry wrote, the woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. But is this account of Adam and Eve disobeying God nothing more than just a story? Is it meant simply to summarize the experience of every human being? Certainly, we can all identify with giving in to temptation and feeling shame afterwards. However, the story seems to describe a specific event when mankind's relationship with God first broke down. Adam is included in genealogies in the Bible as if he were a real person. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. It seems that Paul also regarded Adam as a real person. That points us towards understanding the fall as a historical event, which is described at least partly in symbolic language. We may ask how this fits with the ancient fossils that have been found of humans and human-like creatures. An answer, supported by Bible teachers such as John Stott and Jim Packer, is this, that our species, Homo sapiens, already existed before God gave mankind the capacity to know him. Then, at a particular moment in time, God gave this spiritual capacity to one man and one woman in the first place before extending it to all human beings after the fall. That's one way of understanding our reading as describing an actual event. Now that we've considered the nature of the account, let's go back to the scene in the Garden of Eden. At its centre, lie two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is self-explanatory. But what does the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represent? There are many ways that we can use the verb to know in English, and it's also used in a variety of ways in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. We might use it 
of intellectual knowledge, such as knowing a particular fact, or of relational knowledge, such as knowing a friend, or of a skill, such as knowing how to play the piano, or of experiential knowledge, such as knowing the joy of becoming a parent. But there's a further use of the verb to know that's particularly relevant here. Suppose for a moment that I've got a crucial choice to make between two particular courses of action. I might sleep on it and then in the morning say, I know what I'm going to do. That type of knowing is concerned with making a decision. Likewise, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about deciding what is good and what is evil. That is the prerogative of God our maker. It's the only tree from which God forbid Adam and Eve to eat. The story of creation makes a crucial distinction between God and his creatures. Men and women are indeed different from the animals because they're made in the image of God. But they're still his creatures. They're not God. And so this tree represents a line drawn between them and God that they must not attempt to cross. If Adam and Eve were to eat of this tree, they would be rebelling against God. They would be asserting their own moral autonomy, their entitlement to decide right and wrong for themselves. They would be declaring that they are their own gods. That's the point that the serpent makes when he urges Eve to take the forbidden fruit from this tree. He says in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. The serpent is casting doubt on God's motives, on his concern for their well-being. He's offering them an alternative way to live, free from God's commands. But this would be no freedom at all. The reason for God's prohibition was that this fruit contained spiritual poison. To be freed from this restriction would be like a goldfish being liberated from the water in its bowl. It would result in death, not life. It would be a mockery of freedom, an illusion of independence. It would constitute rejection of the one who alone is the source of all that is good. And so we see the paradox of freedom, for we can only truly find life as it should be within the boundaries of God's will. As the prayer book says, it is in his service that we find perfect freedom. But Adam and Eve made a disastrous choice. They rejected God's commandment. The serpent's words were true in one sad respect. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, their eyes were indeed opened, but in a horrible way. For what they now saw was their shame. They hadn't become gods, but they had ruined their relationship with the one true God. 
The story in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 has been written in a symmetrical pattern to highlight what's going on. It begins with God providing a beautiful garden and ends with him taking away the same garden again. Between those bookends, we read of Adam's harmonious relationships with the woman, with creation, and with God himself. But then all these relationships are spoiled. The pivot point of the story is where Eve and Adam eat the forbidden fruit. Either side of this act, we find questions. Beforehand is the serpent's question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Of course, God had only warned that the fruit of one specific tree would cause death. But the serpent was questioning God's goodness, and he was denying that there would be consequences from disobeying God. You will not certainly die, he said. After the act came God's sad question. Where are you, he asked, as he came to spend time with Adam and Eve, as usual. They were in hiding. He gave them the opportunity to confess. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The woman blamed the serpent. Adam blamed the woman. In fact, he even blamed God for giving him the woman in the first place. God had given them the dignity of being responsible for their own actions. But they were now hopelessly trying to evade that responsibility. The serpent had promised that they could disobey God with impunity. They'd been sold a lie. God then pronounced the consequences of what they'd done. Adam would struggle in working the earth. His relationship with Eve would be harmed. As one commentator put it, to love and to cherish would be replaced by to desire and to dominate. Worst of all was the spiritual death of being estranged from God and eventual physical death. We're not told what would have happened if Adam and Eve hadn't disobeyed. What the Bible does make clear is that eternal life comes only from a relationship with God. Adam and Eve had thrown that away. They'd set mankind on a journey without God. And each of us have reaffirmed that choice by our own individual disobedience of God's commands. It's a tragic story, and it rings true. This diagnosis of the state of our world matches what we see around us. We can see that something is wrong with mankind. We sense that life should have a meaning beyond our fleeting presence on this planet. We also sense that there's a spiritual element to our makeup, that something is missing from our lives without God. But a diagnosis is of little help if no cure is available. Is there any way that this holy and loving God who made the world can once more be in fellowship with the men and women he created? In the midst 
of our bleak reading, there's a ray of hope. For God says to the serpent in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It sounds enigmatic, even mysterious. Indeed, the Apostle Paul refers to God's solution to the problem as a mystery. By that he meant something that was once secret, but had now been revealed. However, God's plan was not a strategy. It was a person. And so Paul writes to the Colossians that his goal is that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. So how does Jesus address this fundamental problem with mankind? We saw that there's a crucial line between God and creation. A line that Adam and Eve sought to cross in behaving as if they were God. God's breathtaking solution to our predicament was to cross that same line, but in the opposite direction. Paul wrote to the Philippians of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Once more, Satan set out to derail what God desired. All this I will give you was effectively what the serpent had promised Eve. But when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness with that same line, he was sternly rebuffed. Satan offered Jesus an alternative route to positions of influence and public acclaim. But it would not have addressed mankind's problem. Jesus' answer to each temptation was to quote from God's word. He did not sin. As we read in the letter to the Romans, for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Now we come to the heart of the solution. Disobedience in the garden had brought alienation and death. It was a penalty that could not be set aside. But it was one that Jesus would take upon himself on the cross. As we read in Isaiah chapter 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then finally, with the debt paid, came the wonderful news of the resurrection. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For since death came through a man, 
the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We began by asking what is wrong with our world? Indeed, what is wrong with the human race? Chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis give the Bible's diagnosis. They tell of how man was gifted with life and all that is good by a loving God, yet chose to go his own way. They explain how mankind was given the capacity to know God, yet now instinctively hides from him. They describe how, without God, life came to be overshadowed by death. But these chapters also explain what sort of a cure we need. As Don Carson has written, if you're a Marxist, what you need are revolutionaries and decent economists. If you're a psychologist, what you need is an army of counsellors. If you think the root of all breakdown and disorder is medical, what you need is large numbers of Mayo clinics. But if our first and most serious need is to be reconciled to God, a God who now stands over against us and pronounces death upon us because of our willfully chosen rebellion, then what we need the most is someone to save us. That is what the gospel offers. That is the mystery of God revealed in Christ. And it presents each person today with a choice that's every bit as crucial as that faced by Adam and Eve. They chose a path that led away from God and towards death. But Jesus offers a different path that leads back into the welcoming arms of the God who made us. That path was opened up to us at enormous personal cost to Jesus, but it's offered to us as a free gift. The invitation is to life and to a future that is blessed by God. As Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And so we can join with Paul in saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen.